Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for this morning and the opportunity to be together. God, as we enter into your word, I pray that you will speak to us and that you will challenge us and encourage us. Um, God, I just pray that you will give us ears to hear and that we will really listen to what you have to say for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its uh, nosiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. And so these are the opening words of Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. It describes what it was like to live as a French peasant in the years that were leading up to the French Revolution. And so these timeless words really help to, to capture uh, this certain season of history, but, but they really can be used to describe a lot of different seasons of history, right? Right? We see these two opposing views that can even, to a certain degree, be used to describe the world that we're in right now. Best of times, worst of times. There's these two different cities, these two different worlds that exist at the same time. As, as disciples of Jesus, we're called to live in the worlds, but not join the worlds. And so we have this two worlds that we exist in. Two different places, two different realities that have to, to coexist in this tension right now. One world is characterized by foolishness. It's characterized by darkness and despair and evil. The other is described as wisdom and belief and light and hope and good. We have these two opposing views, these two worlds that collide and so we find ourselves in a time where we have, to have, we have to live with one foot in both of these. That we live in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven that is, is coming to us here and now, but it is not completely and fully realized yet. And so we have this now and not yet tension that we have to live in. We are really dual citizens of two different kingdoms. We are living here on earth, but we also are living as citizens of the kingdom of God. And so since January, we've been going through this, this look at the gospel of John. And we see, it, uh, see in it Jesus. Jesus is giving us this picture of who God is. Through Jesus, through the revelation of Jesus, God is revealed. And so we see God's character. We see who God is. And we believe, we, we, we look at this and we see Jesus as the way, we see him as the truth, as the life. 
And we find in him this new life in the resurrection of Jesus. And we believe in that and we walk in that. And so at the end of John, we see Jesus commissioning his followers to to continue on. and, And Peter takes the lead in that. They form a new community that is built around the belief in Jesus' death, resurrection, and his return to the Father. But we have these two worlds. There's this kingdom of God that's full of light and hope, but there's also this world that is hostile toward Jesus and toward those who follow Jesus. And so through the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter that that attempts to answer this question of how should we live in the midst of a hostile world that, that is against Jesus? How do we live in that? How do we live out our Christian identity in a world that's hostile towards us? And so today we start with just the first two verses of 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. So this is just the opening greeting. This is the introduction. This is, this, this is the author saying, hey, I'm Peter. This is who it's to. Greetings, grace, and peace. And so we look here to get an idea of what's going to be happening within this letter. First, let's talk about Peter, who's writing this. Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ. We talked some about Peter last week and looked at his restoration with Jesus. He's often characterized as impulsive. We think of, of Peter as the one who's quick to talk and slow to think. He's the one who's quick to respond to something. But before we psychoanalyze him too much, there's not a lot about his psychology that's actually written in Scripture. And so we have to look at the narratives to get an idea of who Peter is. He was given the name Simon, which is a Greek, a Greek translation of Simeon. He was the son of a, na- a man named Jonas. He worked as a fisherman. Not an easy job. He was on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee and and worked in this fishing village of Capernaum. He, along with his brother Andrew and, and others. He was also married and lived with his wife here in this fisherman's village. It was Andrew, his brother, who actually led Peter to Jesus to encounter him for the first time. Peter and Andrew both started off as followers of of John the Baptist. They listened to his preaching and were likely baptized by him as one of his followers. And and there's this day where John the Baptist is, is preaching and he's baptizing and Jesus shows up. And he says, look, the Lamb of God. And Peter and Andrew hear 
what John the Baptist has said. And they see Jesus as the Lamb of God. And they begin to follow Jesus. Their life is totally interrupted. Jesus invites them to follow him, specifically calling them out to follow. And it's this call to follow that Jesus uses this familiar call to them. He says, come and be fishers of men. Here are these fishermen who are asked to drop their nets and to follow Jesus and go with him, to go and fish for something completely different. And Peter's life completely changes at that point. He spends the next three years following Jesus, living life with him, working with him, going side by side with him. Jesus gives Simon this new name. He says, you are Peter the rock. Jesus sees something in Peter, sees past maybe his impulsive behavior, sees past his quick to speak, and sees something in him and says, you are a rock. There's something special about you. And when the crowds began to form around Jesus and they wanted to make him the king and they wanted him to take on this political and military leadership, Jesus made it evident that that was not what he was in the business of doing. Jesus was leading in a different kingdom, and, and because of that, many people stopped following Jesus. And Jesus asked Peter, who do you think I am? Who do you say that I am? What do you think about what I'm doing? And it was Peter who first acted as a spokesman for the group, and he said that Jesus was the one who had the words of life. Peter's the first to affirm Jesus as the Messiah. He says in Matthew 16, But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And so Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so we have this incredible picture here of, of Jesus and Peter interacting with one another, and, and, and Jesus identifying Peter as someone who would take leadership within the church long before the church even existed. And Jesus saying that, that your leadership will, will come in and, and form a new community around who I am. Of course, Peter doesn't really fully realize what's going on yet. But he sees something in Jesus, and Jesus sees something in Peter. And so Peter takes on this increasingly prominent view or role within the story, within the narrative. As we get into the final days of Jesus, as we get into the final hours of Jesus, Peter takes on this significant role where he really is acting as spokesperson for the group and is speaking for the group and representing the group. And they get up to this room for this last supper, and Jesus disrobes and gets ready to wash the feet of his disciples. And who is it that's first 
to refuse the washing of feet? It's Peter. Peter says, no, you're, you're not touching my feet. And Jesus says, you've got to be washed. And so Peter, in true form, responds with, well, wash me from head to toe. Wash all of me. Clean all of me because I want to be cleansed. And it's that same evening that around a table, around a meal together, that Jesus tells Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Peter insists that this is not true, that there's no way that he could deny who Jesus is. But it's not long after that that we find ourselves around a charcoal fire outside of the palace where Peter has followed Jesus. And as Jesus is being interrogated and Peter warms himself by this fire, he denies Jesus three times. And there's this heartbreaking scene in Luke. It says, Peter replied, Man, I do not know who you're talking about. This is his final, his third denial. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word of the Lord that had been spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. And so now Peter is at his lowest point, having actually denied Jesus and recognizing what has happened. And he goes out and weeps. And then Peter's not really a part of the rest of the narrative. We don't know if he went to the cross. We don't know if he went and hid. We don't know if he just remained somewhere weeping and crying over the next couple days. He doesn't come back into the story until Sunday when Mary comes running up to the disciples and say, the tomb is open. Somebody has taken the body. Something is wrong. And so Peter goes racing to the tomb and sees the empty tomb, but we still don't know what Peter's thinking. And so where is Peter in all of this? He sees the empty tomb and he's processing what is going on. And then last week we got to John chapter 21, which is this incredible story of restoration where, where Peter is out fishing, back to business as usual I don't know what's going on with this Jesus guy, but I'm just going to go back and fish. And so he's out on the lake fishing back in his own hometown, back into what's comfortable, back with his brother and his friends, and they're fishing and they just can't catch anything because they're fishing for the wrong thing. And Jesus comes along and says, throw your nets over onto the right side of the boat, and they catch this miraculous load of fish, and Jesus is on the shore with a charcoal fire cooking breakfast. And so Peter comes to the shore, and they eat this breakfast of fish and bread, and then this conversation between the two of them comes about, where Jesus three times says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says three times, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And three times Jesus says, take care of my sheep. Take care of them. 
And so we see this transformation of Peter where he is now restored back into what God is doing and is now commissioned to do something great. And so here we have Peter who just a few days before has been denying Jesus and now is being commissioned to lead this newfound community of people who who exist around the resurrection of Jesus. And does Peter embrace that role or what? On the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Holy Spirit descends on them and and there's these tongues of fire and they start speaking in tongues and the crowd thinks that they're just a bunch of drunkards. They're crazy. Why are they speaking this way? Peter's the one who gets up in front of the crowd and says, we're not drunk. Let me tell you the story of Jesus. Let me tell you what is going on here. And because of his testimony, because of his preaching, 3,000 people were baptized that day. And so now the nets are full and the sheep are there to be taken care of. And Peter takes this call very seriously. He had this ability to, to miraculously heal people, which actually got him in trouble because he, he heals this lame man and he, he gets called in front of the religious leaders and they begin interrogating him in the same way they interrogated Jesus. And they question him and he defends them and their actions. In Acts chapter 4, verse 8, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. He said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if you are being called, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man that was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, by whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus, the stone the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. This is the same man who was warming himself by the fire, denying that he even knew Jesus. And now he is standing in front of these same people, declaring the truth of who Jesus is. Is that restoration or what? Is that a conversion? That Peter has the courage and the empowerment of the Spirit to stand in front of these people and declare, this is Jesus, the one you crucified. (laughs) He's the one. It's by his power that we do these things. And so they're commanded not to do this anymore. Don't heal anybody else. Don't talk about this anymore. We're trying to cover all of this up. And Peter and John respond with, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judge. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And this becomes the the catalyst in this moment where this, this community of faith is formed and grows. And Peter continues to take on this active role in the leadership of the church. Even after Paul enters the scene, the one we're, we're so familiar with, Peter continues to take on a leadership role. 
In Acts chapter 10, Peter has this incredible vision of this, maybe incredible, maybe bizarre, I'm not sure which, but he has this incredible vision of this giant sheet coming down from heaven full of all these unclean animals. And the message to Peter is that the message of Jesus is not just for the Jews, it's also for the Gentiles. And so the church opens up to all the world at that point. That it's not just for the Jews, it's not just for Jerusalem, but this is a mission for all. And this is the message that is given to Peter to carry out. And so while Paul's primary ministry is to the Gentiles and, and Peter's ministry is primarily to the Jews in Jerusalem, Peter still travels extensively. He goes in lots of different places with his wife preaching the gospel. And so he, he visits Antioch, and he even gets to Rome. His ministry in Rome was so significant that the Catholic Church sees that as the foundation of their church in his ministry there. Peter was up to something in Rome. And it's likely that it's in Rome that he writes 1 Peter that this is where he's sending this message to these other churches in these various provinces. It's in Rome that he dies a martyr, as predicted by Jesus. And church tradition says that he was crucified upside down in Rome. And so this is who writes what we're reading. This is the message in 1 Peter coming from Peter the Apostle. Someone who has experienced the ups and downs, the joys, the suffering, the conflicts, the successes. He's experienced the tale of two cities. He's experienced the darkness and the light. He's experienced the hopelessness and the hope. And this is the one who's giving us this message. And so when we read things like 1 Peter 1, 3, that says, In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter's the one that's saying that. He says, you also, like living stones. Here's Peter, the rock, and he's talking about them living like, being like living stones that are being built into a spiritual house. He says in chapter 2, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Peter's the one who's saying this, one who's experienced the darkness, one who has experienced the lights. And he says in chapter 3, All of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Peter's saying that. He's telling these churches to have unity and to love one another. And we were reminded of Jesus' final discourse, his final message to his disciples, where he talks about unity and he talks about love. So Peter's the one who is writing all of this. And it helps us understand what he's written to know that he's the one that's saying it. But who is he writing to? If we look back into these first two verses again, we have Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is who wrote it. And then we have this list of who he's writing it to. 
He's writing it to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of all these places. And so who is it that Peter is writing to? From this, from this greeting alone, we know that Peter's writing to Christians in a variety of different places who are living as exiles or aliens or strangers in these places. It's in a variety of provinces throughout Asia. And so it's not written to a one particular church. It's written to all these other churches who are experiencing similar things. But they have made a choice to follow Jesus and to be obedient to him. And through the context of the entire letter, we know that these are Gentile converts. They're, they're ones who have, have converted to Christianity. And they're suffering because of that decision, but they're also suffering because of their social status. They're experiencing hostility. They're, they're experiencing scorn and, and conflict with the larger culture. The people that Peter is writing to, they're, they're socially marginalized. They're on the fringes of society. They are the disenfranchised workers who are living in the cracks of society. And so when someone is labeled an exile or an alien or a stranger, these are, are words that describe a certain social class. They're, they're words that describe a, a class of, of non citizen residents. And so here we have these Christians who are living in these lands as exiles, as non-citizens. And so because of this status, they were limited on who they could marry. They were limited on land that they could own. They were limited on voting and, and participating in certain cultural activities. They had to pay higher taxes. They had severe forms of, of civil punishment. These are the people that Peter is writing to. They're living in a place where they, they don't have the same legal rights. They don't have the same status and rights of, of those that are citizens. And so not only were they castaways because of the social status they have, they're also pushed to the margins of society because of their commitment to Jesus. And so now there is this conflict that is building. But these exiles have found a new home. They have found a new home in the Christian community. They've found a new identity. The family of God has given them a place, has given them a purpose. So God's true family goes beyond the social boundaries that we see, the social boundaries that society sets up for us. And so this is the social world that exists, that Peter's writing to, and it's, it's one that's very different than our own, one that, that is hard for us to understand, one that, that we can't necessarily relate to. But as we move into an increasingly post-Christian culture, we are starting to experience some of these things as Christians, where, where we're no longer the dominant culture, but we're, we're a, a, another class, another part of society. And so now the decisions that we make as Christians are, are looked at with scorn. They're looked at with criticism. That our, our Christian identity is now being called into question by the society around us. And so maybe we can't fully realize and fully, fully appreciate the society in which Peter is writing to, but we can start to understand a little bit more as we think about what is it like to be a Christian in a world that's hostile towards Christians. 
And this is what we look at through 1 Peter. And so we see in the life of Peter, and we see in who he is writing to, this sense of identity transformation, that, that Peter identifies himself in a certain way and he is transformed by the resurrection of Jesus into something completely different. He moves from, from rejection to denial to, to restoration to apostleship. We see this incredible transformation in Peter. He finds his identity in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And then he's writing to these people who, who are marginalized, who are persecuted, who are suffering. And they too find their identity not in the societal norms around them. They find their identity in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is who they are. It's not what society tells them they are. It is what God tells them they are. Our identity is not based on who society says we are. Our identity is based on who we are in God's family. Our identity is based not on social perceptions. Our identity is based on the resurrection of Jesus. That is who we are. And with that new identity, we have a new purpose. And with that new purpose, we have a new family. And this is who we are as followers of Christ. Because we are members of God's household, because we are a part of this family, our past, our mistakes, our classifications, our social standings, our race, our gender, our location, none of these have a bearing on who we are when it comes to God. When it comes to God, we are defined by the resurrection of Jesus and not by anything else. And so we find ourselves in a tale of two worlds. We find ourselves in a place that is characterized by foolishness and darkness and despair and evil. But we also find ourselves in a place that is characterized by wisdom and belief and light and hope and good. And so what world do you put your faith in? Which of those two worlds, of those two cities, do you place your identity in? Because we are living in this world as aliens and strangers. We are living in this world as ones who have citizenship in heaven and citizenship in the kingdom of God. But yet we're still in this place. We're still in this world that is full of scorn. A world that is full of criticism. A world that is attacking the truth of Scripture. And so how do we live in these two worlds. And that's what we're going to look at over the next several weeks as we dive into 1 Peter. How do we live in this world? And so I want to challenge you this week as homework to go and read all of 1 Peter. It's short. You can get through all of it this week. One chapter a day and take a couple days as a break. So read through all of 1 Peter, and we're going to jump into 1 Peter chapter 1 next week as we look at what it means to live this new life, what it means to live a life identified in the resurrection of Jesus. And we look at Peter as this incredible example who speaks with the authority of an apostle, but also the experience and the life of someone who's lived it. Let's stand together.
So this morning is a little bit more of a history lesson than it is a sermon. A little bit of looking at the testimony of Peter, but I, but I hope that in, in looking at the story of who Peter is, you can see yourself in that story in some way. You see someone who has screwed up and made mistakes, and you see one who has been restored into a relationship with Jesus. And so where is your identity coming from? What are the voices that are defining who you are? How is the world defining you? But how does God define you? And we rest in that truth, knowing that we were a people of the resurrection, a people of Jesus. And so we're going to spend some time praying with one another. It's a time to encourage one another, pray for one another, with one another. We'll have shepherds down front, and you can come down and pray with one of us. Uh, your, your life groups can get together and pray together. Families get together and pray. Uh, let's pray and worship together. God, we thank you for Peter. and We thank you for the tremendous uh, transformation that he experienced. God, I pray that we can see ourselves in that story and that we will be ones who gain our identity through the resurrection of Jesus. And so the labels that society puts on us, God, I pray that those will just wash off of us, that we won't experience those, and that we will experience life in your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.